The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. It's one of the hardest things to endure and one of the hardest things to help someone else endure. I'm talking about grief. What do we do to help other than mumble condolences and ask if there's anything we might be able to do? If we are literature-oriented and we know our friend or loved one is as well, we might turn to a book. Here's C.S. Lewis and A Grief Observed, we might say. It helped me. Maybe it can help you as well. Now we have another book to put on that list. We can read it now out of interest or maybe to prepare ourselves for those moments when we're next called upon to do the difficult or impossible, to heal, to recover, to find our way back. The book is by Robert D. Richardson, who wrote three magisterial biographies of very well-known writers, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and William James. Something chimed across the lives of all three, a sad note resounding through their lives, as it does for all of us if we live long enough. They each experienced loss, devastating loss. Richardson had some thoughts about what that meant, what they endured, what they turned to, and what we can draw from their experience. Richardson, unfortunately, passed away before we could invite him on the show. But the book has a foreword by one of our favorite guests, who was a friend of Richardson's, and who is herself no stranger to the art of literary biography, Megan Marshall. She joins us today to talk about her friend and her friend's book, Three Roads Back, How Emerson Thoreau and William James Responded to the Greatest Losses of Their Lives, on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. I sometimes talk about the delivery of truth in literature and whether we want that to come from gods like Tolstoy or sinners like Dostoevsky. Do you want the voice to be one of near infallibility or extreme fallibility, as it were? Who's your guy in the pulpit, a saint or a sinner? Well, There's a combination of these things, of course. As Aristotle might point out, the golden mean is usually the proper way, and so too with this. Here we are with three great minds, Emerson, Thoreau, and James. It's hard to imagine a trio who've thought longer and harder about the human condition than those three. They are like gods. But this angle is not them at their most godlike. Not holy men delivering truths from some placid mountaintop. This is a look at what they did in their own lives, where things get messier. Did all that book learning help? Did it change them? Did their experience change them? Did it make them more religious or less so? Did they find solace somewhere and how? And was it a surprise or did it fit right into the way that they'd been approaching the cosmos prior to that? 
I mentioned that this book is especially powerful as one of our guides to grief, and I didn't mention something else. It's very short and small, not even 100 pages, and the book is smaller than most in dimensions, which is good. The last thing your mourning friend wants or needs is for you to come in with a 900-page biography of your favorite author. Here you go, friend. A multi-volume set of the life of Vladimir Nabokov. I hope it helps. Perhaps there's room for it in the hearse. No, no, you want a book like this. One you can slip into a coat pocket and press into a hand when the time is right. But it's not just for occasions like that. Literature fans will enjoy it too. It offers a glimpse of these giants of literature at moments of extreme vulnerability. And that tells us much about how to live and how to grieve and how to go on living. But it also tells us much about them and their ideas and their works, literary history. Loss can be a cross, but it can also be a crucible. We test ourselves. What survives is what matters. But enough about this. Let's bring out our guest to help us learn about Robert D. Richardson, how this book came about, what's in it, and how Megan Marshall came to be a part of the project. Megan Marshall, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Megan Marshall, one of the foremost chroniclers of New England literary culture. Her biographies include works on the Peabody Sisters, Margaret Fuller, and Elizabeth Bishop. She's here today to discuss a new book for which she wrote the foreword, Three Roads Back, How Emerson, Thoreau, and William James Responded to the Greatest Losses of Their Lives by Robert D. Richardson. Megan Marshall, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me, Jack. So the subject of the book is grief and loss, which sadly, unfortunately, is is all too appropriate for us because the author, Robert Richardson, has passed away. Can you tell us about your friendship with Bob? Yes, thanks for the question. Boy, what a, what a friend to have. Bob died a little more than two years ago in 2020, but I met him first in uh, late 1980s, when I was a few years into work on my book on the Peabody sisters, who were mm. part of the transcendentalist group that he knew so well. Um, mm-hmm. He had finished 
his biography of Thoreau and through that biography had fallen in love with Annie Dillard. They fell in love with each other oh. uh, through that through that book, the great nature writer, essayist, prose yeah. writer, Annie Dillard. And Annie had been part of a kind of group of literary friends that I was on the fringe of who gathered on the Cape for summers. And at the heart of this was the great biographer, Justin Kaplan, and mm. his wife, Anne Bernays, a novelist. And and we used to, when I was able to visit them, spend time playing Scrabble and anagrams that Annie was very good at. We called them Anniegrams. Mm. Um, into this came... Bob Richardson, and he and I just bonded right away about our mutual research. He was then in the middle of his biography of Emerson, and no more anagrams for us. (laughs) (laughs) One of the wonderful things about Bob was that he was just so unified with his work and his interests, and I guess I was a little that way too. So when we met, we would talk about our work, and you know, he was older than I was, uh, maybe by a decade or more, and, and farther along in his work. This was my first biography. His encouragement was just invaluable, and I miss him to this day. Mm. And I understand that he sent you the manuscript of this book as a kind of act of friendship when you were also dealing with loss, which I was sorry to hear. Yes, yes, that's right. In 2019, my partner of 15 years, Scott Harney, who was a poet. We'd met in writing classes at Harvard as undergraduates and then re-met later. He had had an illness sort of hanging over him much of that time and finally died in 2019. And it happened that Bob and I were uh, speaking on a panel that summer at the Concord Museum, and I told him about this. He'd known about it, and he said, well, you know, you might want to read this, this short book I've written it was just kind of floating around at the time, and he called it Resilience then, hmm. about, as you've said in the subtitle, the how Emerson, Thoreau, and William James, his three great biographical subjects, had dealt with significant losses in their lives. And he just sent it to me by email. We really largely communicated by email, and that was how our friendship evolved after I was no longer so much part of that, you know, going to the Cape on the summer. I couldn't Mm -hmm. always manage that, raising kids and all. So anyhow, he sent it to me, and I didn't know what it would be like. It took a little while for me to open it and and read it. And what I found was just something that was, at the time, perfectly suited to what I needed. You know, as writers often do, they will turn to literature to console themselves at a time of loss. And this book was both consoling and inspiring. Mm. It is a a book I think you could say would be really important for people who are grieving to read, but it's also these three kind of compact biographies about how death actually inspired the life force in these three really important American thinkers. Right. And you mentioned that you had a different experience when you read the book a second time. And I I took that to mean that you were originally looking for it to be something more like a a how to mourn. And then on your second read, you saw more about the, the way that it conveys how these foundational thinkers in America had arrived at their ideas. Yeah, you know, it really proved to me how true it is that you the reader brings their own self and their own questions to any book, and each book is <laughs> that reader's book as they read it in a particular time. So, you know, I was looking for instruction away initially, and for one of the fascinating things that Bob does is he sort of tracks the 
recovery from loss for each of these mm-hmm. men and, and how long it took them and what was the process. And I found that very encouraging that, that it could happen and it might happen on, you know, who knows what sort of schedule um, they began to write again. And it was when I was asked to write the foreword, which I was felt quite honored to do, that I uh, read it again and saw how much of, you know, it was a kind of distillation of his work as a biographer through his life and in a way stood as a monument to his accomplishment. Yeah. I want to ask you about each of the three men, but before we get there, if we could explain a little bit about what the book is like, Bob called it a work of documentary biography. Yes. Yeah. What was his approach and what should the reader expect when they open the book? Well, by documentary biography, he is referring to a reliance on the documents of these writers' lives. Mm. And so he does quote at some length from their journals or letters, letters to them in in the case of William James. But it's very much shaped by Bob's own sensibility, and you get a very strong uh, and and his decisions. That's the thing about making a documentary film or a documentary biography. The choice and the shaping is really what makes the work of writing. So it's it's a small book, and you will not feel as you read it that you're loaded down with long passages from these writers' works. You will feel that you're being guided through their lives in these really crucial periods, mm. formative periods, uh, when in each case someone they had loved deeply died very young when they too were quite young. That was what I think was a revelation to me when I came to it again. These are young people being transformed by early loss. And I think that makes it a book that's wonderful for young people as well. These days we experience a bit less of that perpetual Mm -hmm. loss of children. In fact, all three of these significant deaths were to tuberculosis. But of course, we've been living through a time of grief, a time of great loss. And I think that the underlying message of resilience, how we build ourselves back up or the the three roads back, is really impactful for our time. Mm -hmm. And he seems like he's he's giving the the moment the room to breathe a little bit is how I felt that he instead of making it a line in a biography and then with hindsight we know what happened and what happened next and so on or it's just more like a detail he's kind of putting the reader in the shoes of the person who's dealing with the grief and showing the decisions that they had to make at that point and and how it affected them and almost letting us work through the moment of grief along with the writer Yes, I completely agree. I think that's very well said. Thank Mm. you. The first case that he deals with is Ralph Waldo Emerson, and in some ways that demonstrates this step-by-step approach as strongly as any of the other cases Mm. in the book. And in the case of Emerson, who was mourning his teenaged bride, I mean, he was eight years older than Ellen Tucker, and they met when she was the daughter of in a minister's household in New Hampshire, or stepdaughter, actually, and he'd gone there to give a sermon. And she was 16, and he was 24, I guess, at the time. And they were engaged when she was 17 and married when she was 18. But she died at 19 of the tuberculosis or consumption, they would have called it, that was very evidently taking hold 
in her weakened but still very attractive to Waldo Emerson. He was mm. called Waldo Body. It's interesting that consumption also really took away quite a number of Emerson's own family members, mm. his uh, brothers, too, later in life. And he had suffered from it himself. So it, it was rampant. And I think we need to remember that when we sort of say, well, you know, why are these guys falling in love with these sickly women? Uh, don't they know they're going to die? Oh, right, right. You know, you know, it was possible to recover. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, you know, this was, he had gone to divinity school. He had a, a posting as a minister in the Second Church, Unitarian, at a time when Unitarianism was kind of new. And he was, and they had a happy marriage for a year during which, though, unfortunately, she declined. And he continued preaching for a while as he also continued visiting her, walking out a considerable distance to visit her grave every day. And a bit more than a year after this, in February, he decided to, we we don't know much about it, he just wrote in his journal, I visited Ellen's tomb and opened the coffin. So as Bob sees this, it was Waldo's insistence on knowing, on seeing, on understanding what was really taking place. He had found Ellen's death almost intolerable, hard to believe in a way. Mm. And this moment, horrible as it may have been, although later Emerson wrote about the, the beauties of decay and came to see that decay was a process of life, it really sparked a change in him, he resigned his ministry over a dispute about whether communion should be served. He didn't. He thought this was a false ritual, and his congregation wouldn't drop the practice. He took a trip to Europe, and while there, had this deeply inspirational moment in the Jardin des Plantes, which is a kind of a natural history museum, a very early one in Paris, looking at the specimens and the birds and the plants and. And suddenly he became just inspired by what he began to feel as the unity of nature mm. and its cyclical nature. He returned and began his life as, as a lecturer with a, a lecture called The Uses of Natural History. That was what science was thought of then. And this led to his great work, first book called Nature. And as Bob explains, I mean, this was really so pivotal one step after another, although it took him two and a half years to get through those steps. But here's something that Bob writes about this lecture from the uses of natural history. In a way, the death of Ellen freed him or gave him the insight to create a whole new way of being as an influential person and thinker in these you know, young United States ministers had been who everyone turned to, but now he was going to be a lecturer and an mm-hmm. essayist. And mm-hmm. and this was the very beginning of it. So he says in this lecture, he talks about the, and this is in quotations, a part of the documentary, secret sympathy, which connects men to all animals and to all the inanimate world around him. And then Bob says, and it is here that he first says, and again, another quotation, the whole of nature is a metaphor of the human mind. So you think about this really dramatic transformation yeah. and a major change through revelation that 
was what happened with Emerson. And you begin to see as you're reading this little book how much came out of <laughs> out of that episode that Bob describes so so wonderfully. I also, I don't know if you have time for this, but I wanted to just point out that in amongst the documentary writing is Bob's really fine biographical writing. And um, if you have time for it, I have a, a, a paragraph I could read um, yes. about that. Okay. Um, you know, so this is what, what did I learn from Bob Richardson? I learned the art of, you know, the capsule sketch of your character at, at a certain time mm. in their lives. And I think this is just brilliant. Bob Richardson writing this, he's describing Emerson returning from Paris and when he's about to take up his work as a lecturer the 30-year-old Emerson who came ashore back in Boston on October 9, 1833, was a different person from the sickly wreck who had boarded the Jasper in that same port nine months earlier. The Emerson who returned had a new intellectual and philosophical focus, new beliefs, a new profession, a new subject to write on, and lots of energy and enthusiasm for it all. He was a tall man, standing six feet in his shoes, he had narrow, sloping shoulders and a long neck, and he carried himself erectly. His eyes were very blue, his hair dark brown. He wore loose-fitting clothes and struck some observers as looking like a prosperous farmer. He carried his money in an old wallet wrapped in twine. Mm-hmm. I think that's just brilliant, you know, the way it goes <laughs> from the abstract and the intellectual to the very, very concrete, which, of course, is kind of a lesson in transcendentalism. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll hear about Thoreau and William James. Okay, we're back. Megan, thank you so much for that description of Emerson. It really kind of sets the the stage, I think, for what this book is about. I was struck when I was reading about Thoreau that when he experienced loss— he went to see Emerson and would only talk to Emerson. So who was yes. who was he grieving? Well, um, Henry Thoreau had an older brother, John, who was kind of the light of the family, much more socially adept than Henry, who we all know became a kind of famous recluse, although he had certain valued friendships. But John, like Ellen Emerson, suffered from tuberculosis as did Henry later in life, and his constitution was weakened. He didn't die of tuberculosis, though. When when Henry was 24 and John was 27, after they had made their famous trip on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, and they had taught school for a while in Concord, John wasn't well enough to continue teaching. One morning, I, I believe actually was the January 1st of 1842, New Year's Day, John cut his finger shaving, put a bandage on it, and um, a week later, it had become deeply infected. Mm-hmm. And uh, with, you know, no antibiotics at the time, he had gangrene, lockjaw, and died a just terrible convulsing death with Henry there holding him in his arms. And mm-hmm. this was the, the brother he loved, the only brother. And, oh. and Henry had this amazing kind of sympathetic reaction 
Well, he did go to speak to Emerson that day, but then he came home and, and had his own kind of mock case of lockjaw and yeah. took to his bed for quite a while, several weeks, really. And at that point, well, following on that, Waldo Emerson's oldest child, little Waldo, died at age five of scarlet fever that same month that mm. John Thoreau had died. So, And Henry Thoreau had been, you know, kind of a caretaker, a friend of the family. He was very attached to little Waldo, too. So these were sort of mountains and mountains of grief that were landing upon all of them. But Emerson was older. He had survived his wife's death. He was able to actually come around to try to comfort Henry on his sickbed, on his wasting away. And what he brought him was a book, actually a translation by one of the women I wrote about, Elizabeth Peabody, of a book by a French transcendentalist, I guess you'd say, that spoke to the glories of nature, mm. that the natural world is the vocabulary of the spiritual world. And that's when Thoreau began writing again in his journal, began actually returned to his fascination with nature that had come to obsess him in years before this. He was a young original, Thoreau was. And yeah. so one of Bob's points about Thoreau was that for him, this loss wasn't so much a matter of making great changes in his life as Emerson had over a period of about two and a half years. For for Thoreau, is a it was a matter of a, a deepening of who he already was. That's what uh, mm. Bob says. And so there were kind of two revelations that came out of this for Thoreau within maybe the revelations came after about two months and then the working through of them went on over the summer after this, again, a gift by by way of a sort of benefaction of Emerson's, I'll get to in a minute. But he uh, he saw that friendship could stand in the place of brotherhood, and Emerson was that friend at this moment. So that was one insight that uh, my friend is my brother, friend mm -hmm. is my real brother, uh, he wrote. And then it was that nature, through nature, there was kind of eternal life that in a way death was life because the natural world could recover from from that loss. And so he's looking at, well, at, so at this point when this change is beginning, he makes this realization, again, also fundamental. I guess we maybe we should say a third realization. He says in a letter to a friend, my destiny is now arrived, is now arriving. I believe that what I call my, my circumstances, that is, man in nature, him, himself in Concord, will be a very true history of myself. Mm. That He's, he's uh, finding that writing about himself and his observations are going to be the work of his life. And Emerson, who had taken over the editorship of The Dial at this time, maybe that was also a way of coping with his losses, handed Thoreau a pile of books about the natural history of Massachusetts, which led to Thoreau's first great writing on nature and in which he really does come to, well, what Bob says, a profoundly felt emotional acceptance, not just an intellectual ascent of death as an inescapable part of living and an acceptance that at some level there is no death. It's just astonishing to see someone prostrate on their bed with grief and only six months later, writing, this is from Natural History of Massachusetts, surely joy is the condition of life. Mm. Uh, he sees nature's capability to restore itself as a kind of joy. 
Is it the feeling that it's humbling to be in nature and to know that we ourselves are just made of matter and are like other organisms and we're all ultimately stardust and so on and feeling like it allows you to accept that death and decay are part of a natural process and it's not something to fear or to resent, but that we will be renewed just as, you know, a, a tree yeah, that's yeah. dropped down will decompose and so on. Yeah, very much so. Here's a bit of the documentary evidence, I guess, that you would say Bob offers. So I was writing about little Waldo. He said he died as the mist rises from the brook, which the sun will soon dart his rays through. Do not the flowers die every autumn? He had not even taken root here. I was not startled to hear that he was dead. It seemed the most natural event that could happen. And he goes on to say, and nature will not manifest any sorrow at his, at little Waldo's death, but soon the note of the lark will be heard down in the meadow and fresh dandelions will spring from the old stalks where he plucked them last summer. Mm. It's in some ways almost too sad, but also, as I said, he finds joy in this thought of renewal. Yeah. When he faced his own death, I guess I'd say also, you know, Thoreau died fairly young, too, and, and perhaps in some way this philosophy was a way of coming to terms with his own early death. He knew his his death was really emerging with nature. Sometimes people will turn away from something after grief. For example, they, they'll say, I was expecting my religion to help me, and I found that I still felt empty and it didn't work, or or I was I was turning to you know something else to friendship or to to work or or something to help me get over it and it ultimately didn't work. It sounds like for Emerson and Thoreau at least it wasn't so much that it was they already had inclinations toward these things and they found that the process of grief and the experience of it deepened their appreciation and understanding of how these things fit into their lives. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, since you bring the question up of religious faith, that I think there were two different experiences that Waldo did initially himself find he could not believe in the old texts. That was his predisposition already, of course, as you said. So, you know, the, the resurrection to him seemed a false story and the resurrection of Christ. And he was looking for another story of renewal, which he found in nature. Thoreau, who we so much associate with nature, did say that if he hadn't had those lines from the Bible, I am the resurrection and the life, to recite to himself in the initial days after John died, he, he might not have survived. But he too transmogrified that, that kind of I am the resurrection and the life line into a natural resurrection and being part of that themselves. So it's interesting that you uh, have kind of brought a, a transition to discussing uh, William James's loss, mm. which took place also when he was quite young. He was very much attached to his cousin, Minnie Temple, who, like Ellen Emerson and John Thoreau, was uh, suffering 
from tuberculosis. She was a, a magnetic creature. I say creature because that's the term that uh, both Henry and William James used to yeah. refer to this really. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was just her death that made them glorify her afterwards. She clearly was a magnetic person and had a fascinating mind and way of expressing herself. But William James was in a period of depression and doubt when she died already. So it wasn't as if her death plunged him into a despair that he was unfamiliar with. In fact, they had both been, William James and his cousin Minnie, uh, discussing their own sense that conventional religion wasn't really a help anymore. And this is one letter that Bob does quote at, at great length, is Minnie Temple's letter to William stating that doubt. And at the end, she says that, I'm, after all, a good deal of a pagan, <laughs> like that. If I had lived before Christ, music would have come like a divine voice to tell me to be true to my whole nature, to stick to my keynote and have faith that my life would so, in some way or other, if faithfully lived, swell the entire harmony. Mm. This is a grander music than the music of the spheres. Of course, the question will always remain, what is one's true life? and we must each try and solve it for ourselves. That was a letter written by Minnie to William James just a few weeks before she died. Wow. And he was just, again, plunged deeper into despair, deeper into depression. In his case, I mean, they weren't married, they were cousins. It's a little bit nebulous what this relationship was like, but he says in a journal entry, a great portion of me died with you and is, is in the coffin with you. He writes to Minnie even after she's died. So there was a kind of maybe symbiosis or identification that was hard for William James to live without this great inspiration. Someone mm -hmm. who he may have thought would help him find the keynote of, of his life. But, you know, we're going sort of by time that Emerson progress was about two and a half years. Bob figures the rose was about six months. And here, in less than two months, William James, who had been a very, you know, had not really found his vocation. He'd thought he wanted to be a painter. He'd gone to scientific school. He was going to medical school and dropping in and out. He went on a big trip to the Amazon with Louis Agassiz, right. the natural, you know, the great, um, well, I guess, Agassiz. There are some aspects of him that are not Disputed, so good, but yeah. they went to the Amazon. <laughs> yes, he was an anti-Darwin and... and uh, not enlightened in any way. And of course, William James moved away from that, but still he got to go to the Amazon. At any rate, he really did not know what to do with himself, but, and he had, I think through his medical training, been working in an, in a hospital where he'd come across a, a patient who was deeply disturbed and frightening to him. And this patient reappeared to him in a kind of startling, horrible, phantasmagoric vision that he experienced just a few weeks after Minnie's death. And it seemed to him he somehow couldn't separate his own depressed self from this, this figure who appeared to him. And he developed, he said, a horrible fear of my own existence. That shape am I, he says, referring to this vision of the frightening, perhaps catatonic, wild man that kind of presented itself to him. He was really laid low by this vision. And again, we can't absolutely link it to Minnie's death, but it's clear that um, the depression deepened and 
then something kind of miraculous happened. He writes that after days of horrible dread, during which he realized the pit of insecurity beneath the surface of life, he suddenly had an instinct, and again, it was in his reading that he suddenly began to think about the concept of free will, which became Mm -hmm. the cornerstone of William James's philosophy. He decided, he just said, he decided, my first act of free will will be to believe in free will. That was his first act. And then he went on to say, as he thought about this more, came up with this notion that we now think of as, as behavioral psychology. He says, I will voluntarily cultivate the feeling of moral freedom by reading books favorable to it, as well as by acting. Mm-hmm. And then he gets even farther. Not only will I act with it, but also believe in my individual reality and creative power. So what Bob comments about this is that William James somehow came to the realization that the power of habit and the power of action can be restorative in the way that for Emerson and Thoreau, the notion of being at one with nature was restorative for them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that leads me to the question I wanted to ask you about grief and about uh, managing it and responding to it, which is, I remember when I was in college and for a class, I was reading the rule of St. Benedict and they were prescribing the behavior for these monks. And it was saying every morning at such and such time, you should pray and this is what you should do. And, you know, here's when you should sing and here's what you should eat. And and basically saying, this is the structure we're going to give your life. And you will, through this structure, you will open yourself up to the feelings of God and the feelings of faith that you need. And I remember we were discussing in class the critics of it who would say, well, you could just be going through the motions. That doesn't, just because you're doing those things doesn't mean you're going to get that kind of faith. And instead, you should look inward and find the faith, and that will govern your actions. That will tell you what to do. And it occurred to me that grief is similar to that. Some people will say, well, keep a journal or go for walks or visit the grave or plant a tree or write letters to your departed loved ones or make a photo album, you know, have all these different things to do in order to open yourself up to the kind of feelings that you need in order to understand loss. And other people might say, no, you don't need to do those things. You need to examine your feelings and try to understand and try to make sense of it And from that, that will tell you what you should do. That will drive your actions. Where do you think these writers would land on that question? Would they be on one side of that or the other? Well, I think William James's notion of habit as reinforcing a positive mental state would suggest he's a rule of Benedict kind of person. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, I do know that Emerson and Thoreau also had fairly structured lives. Mm -hmm. In the case of Emerson, he was lucky to have a wife and family who would bring structure to the life and, and, you know, get those meals on the table and make sure that he was in his study every morning writing, although he did enjoy having his children come in and play on the floor. But I would guess that Thoreau was more following the rhythm of the seasons. And I can't imagine him sticking to a dinner 
schedule rigidly if there was something attractive that he wanted to uh, follow up through a very late summer afternoon and evening, uh, even as he also was very much a man of his family and lived with his family through the family he grew up with throughout his life in Concord. That's an important question, I think. And I guess what I want to say is that everyone finds their own way. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the message of this book. Even if there are some ways in which the three were similar, they each took their own time and found their own way to a path forward or a road back, as the title of the book suggests, back to who they were becoming, who they perhaps fundamentally were. And I think that's the experience I've had too. I think that you need to, for me, a certain amount of habit has been helpful to anchor my life mm. and taking similar walks, even, you know, eating similar food. And we've all endured and Certainly not all of us have survived the COVID threat and yeah. scourge. And I think everyone has had to mourn and has had to find a way of getting through a, a very difficult time, which has lasted now more years than it took Waldo Emerson to recover from his wife's death. So I think there's a lot to be learned from this book and from these lives. Bob Richardson worked with another great biographer, Walter Jackson Bate, who was a professor at Harvard, who had a view that it was through studying the lives of others we could become our truest selves. Mm. Become, this is quoting Walter Jackson Bate, who argued for linking ourselves imaginatively with the great figures of the past. And through this kind of identification, he said we would become freer, freer to be ourselves, to be what we most want and value. So that's what Bob has worked toward as a biographer and that he offers in these three lives responding to three deaths mm. in Three Roads Back. The book is called Three Roads Back, How Emerson, Thoreau, and William James Responded to the Greatest Losses of Their Lives by Robert D. Richardson. Megan Marshall, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I recommend this small but powerful book, Three Roads Back, by Robert D. Richardson, with a foreword by our guest today, Megan Marshall. My thanks to her for joining me. You can hear our other episodes with Megan Marshall in our archives. Episodes on Elizabeth Bishop, Margaret Fuller, and the Peabody Sisters. Plenty of archive episodes on Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and... Well, you know, we haven't done William James yet, but we have done many episodes featuring his brother Henry. And we have another round with the old master coming up soon, too. Hope you stick around or come back and join us for that. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.